So as we've gone through Nehemiah, we've so far talked about three things. Nehemiah, the first chapter, we looked at Nehemiah was a man of prayer, um, and we looked at he would spend months praying towards this one certain moment, months and months and months. And it's always challenging to me to think about just a, a quote that runs through my head regularly is, Russell, have you prayed about it as much as you've talked about it, right? Because if you're like me, when there's a big thing coming up, I'll talk about it, and, and usually it's really just complaining, if I'm honest. I complain about it to others, and I always go back to that question, Russell, are you actually praying about this thing as much as you've talked about it? And we saw that Nehemiah was a man of prayer. The second week, we looked at that Nehemiah was a man of burdens. Um, and these are burdens from the Lord. These are not self-imposed burdens like many that we carry around. Um, and what we said was many of us, we carry around burdens that are not from God. We carry around burdens that are placed on us from the, Lord, or from the world, such as perfectionism or busyness or the burden of I have to have the perfect looking family. And it is exhausting. Can I get an amen on that, by the way? I mean, it is exhausting. And so if you really pay attention, and, and honestly, if we even look in the mirror sometimes, this is why we have so many believers in Jesus Christ who are 100% justified. They're 100% united with Christ, but they are exhausted. And, and Jesus says, I've come so you can have, what's the word? Life and have it to the fullest. And so Jesus, he says, hey, there's such a thing as life, and then there's this thing of the fullness of life. And I believe so many believers, we, we, we settle for, for just existence. We settle for this basic thing, and, and we're a new creation in Christ, 100% born again, yet what we do is then we put on these burdens, like putting on a 90-pound backpack, and then we carry around this burden that the world places on us or we place on ourselves, and I believe this is why so many Christians are exhausted, and, and we're just existing. We're not really living, we're just existing. And this is why you see so many believers buy into constantly the burden of busyness, of I've gotta go, go, go. go. Like I buy into the, the lie of perfectionism, buy into the lie of I always have to look like I've got it together. And guys, it is exhausting. And just looking at your faces, I know that you agree with me, right? And so this is why uh, Nehemiah, when we say he was a man of burdens, those were burdens from the Lord. He had a burden for God's people. And so be careful, just because your burden doesn't mean it's from the Lord, right? And this is the call of Jesus, is to come lay down your burdens. These burdens that we put on ourselves. Hey, the, all that junk that you're carrying around, just let it go, man. And then Jesus, please burden us, give us a heart for your people. Like the things that break Jesus's heart, I pray that it breaks our heart. And the things that really he doesn't care about, I pray that we don't care about either, you know? Like I really, I really, like who cares? Like it's fun to watch, it's fun to be a part of some things. Like yesterday I watched the OU Texas football game and it's, it's funny to watch because I'm, I'm, I'm 15 years removed from graduating, I think that's right. I went to OU and we, I used to go to that game and stuff and so, and I remember when we would go to that game, I had so much stake in it, you know what I mean? Do you guys remember that when you're younger? Like I had attached myself to whether or not these, this group of teenagers is going to catch a ball or not. Like part of me was attached to it, and I would feel burdened if 
we lost, okay? And it's pretty neat because as I get older, I detach myself more and more from it. And this is one of those things that's like, I, don't, I really don't think Jesus cares who wins, right? All right. Although for the past four years, he's seemed to favor Oklahoma. I'll just say it. I'll just say, sorry. No. Uh, but he doesn't. Re- and so it's like, I want to be a part of that. And I can, f- can anyone else feel that? You can feel yourself being pulled towards the silliness of 22 athletes chasing a piece of leather. Like, does any, like, can you feel, like, come on, someone, yes or no? Like, can you feel yourself being pulled towards the silliness of, I need to buy this bigger house that's empty 95% of the time so I can afford to have a car uh, that I don't actually own so I can wear clothes I don't like to impress people I don't like so I can pay for someone else to raise my child. Does anyone else feel yourself pulled towards that, right? Like, and, and Kinsey and I, years ago, we looked at that. We had, a, we had a nice house. It was about, it was too big for us, 2,400 square feet, something like that. And we realized we were both working so hard so that my cats could enjoy it full time. <laughs> I'm just saying it how it is. And I can feel my heart get pulled towards that. And that's a burden that the world tries to place on you. And so when I say Nehemiah was a man of burdens, don't think that means any burden that comes along. We want to be burdened for God's people. And then last week we looked and said, uh, Nehemiah was a man of urgency. Um, there was a bit of urgency about him, that he wasn't complacent, that he never, he never said the words, well, someone else will take care of it. And he never said the words, and these are devastating. He never said the words right here, listen, well, that's just the way it is. That, that's kind of the way things go. And so this is why even as believers, as a church, I love that word urgency, that we'd be people of urgency, because I hope that you're seeing, and I'm not trying to be dramatic, guys, we have so little time. We have so little time. You understand that? The, the older saints in the room, yeah. The younger people are like, I don't know what you're talking about. You'll get it one day. I promise you, we have so little time. And church, we, we have to be about urgency. That doesn't mean panic, but like, let's keep the first things first. And, and anything that's extra and anything that is fluff, let's just get rid of it, you know? And so that's why like even, like even at our church, like I don't want people to be impressed with our church service, honestly. I, I don't want them to say, wow, this is really slick and sexy and oh my gosh, it was so, like I love that it, as far as we can in our church, there's like rough edges around, right? That there's a little bit of grittiness to us and that's the first century church, by the way. Have you ever been to like a church service and it's just so perfect and pristine and polished and you walk away impressed with the service, Right? You walk away impressed with the people, impressed with the leadership, rather than walking away being impressed with God's people and, and saying, man, these people are broken, but Jesus is enough, and there is grace upon grace upon grace for those who come here. And so that's why, like, any fluff, we just want to get rid of it. Like, I'm so, I'm so tired of all the church fluff. Who, who in here has been born and raised in the Bible Belt? I'm not going to call on you. Just raise your hand just so we have an idea. Yeah, most of us in here, right? Is anyone else just tired of the church fluff? Like the politics, that we've got to make it pretty. Oh, we, that might offend someone. We certainly can't. Let's just skip that part of the Bible. Let's leave that out. Like I'm so tired of like churches preaching partial gospel truth and leaving out the offensive parts. 
right? Which, by the way, if, if a truth is partial truth, it's not truth. You understand that, don't you? If it's partially true, that's another word for what? A lie. <laughs> and Satan is the father of lies, and he loves partial truths because it's not the truth at all. And so anyways, all that to say, Nehemiah was a man of urgency. And today we're going to look at Nehemiah's opposition. If you're in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, I want you to look at this. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse, um, uh, look at verse 10. This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. He's in response to, there's a guy that the people are struggling to forgive. And look what Paul says. He says, uh, verse 10, he says, if you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. Talking about that guy. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. Look at this. In order that Satan might not outwit us. Okay? And so this is what he's referencing here, how to let Satan take advantage of you. You know, the word Satan is the English transliteration of the word adversary. Please, dear Christian, please know you have an adversary. You have an opponent, okay? We don't talk about this very often, and I wish we would, but, but you have a spiritual being that hates you and that has come to steal, kill, and destroy. And he's the father of lies. That's what he speaks. You have an opponent. Uh, just to be honest, many Christians live a very naive life. We, we walk around with this mentality of, it's just me and Jesus. And that's some of the worst theology I've ever heard. And you will literally see it written on church signs that literally will say, it's just me and Jesus. Like there's one around here. I'm not going to point it out. I'll let you figure it out. That is terrible. That's a very naive approach uh, to life. And look at the next thing he says, in order that Satan might not outwit, outwit us. So he says, hey, how can we make sure that he doesn't take advantage of us? What does it say right here? He says, for we are not unaware of his, what's the word right there? Schemes. Does anyone say anything different? Designs. Okay. Anything else? No? Okay. So schemes and designs. What Paul is saying is, hey, when we are aware of Satan's schemes, when we can open up his playbook and see, hey, this is how he likes to attack, he says, that is how we can defend ourselves and not be taken advantage of. Okay? And so look at Nehemiah chapter 2. I want to point out his opposition, and I want you to see what's happening here, because it's, it's pretty cool that Nehemiah uh, this literally fig I mean this literally happened, but we can also take some spiritual truths out of what we'll see when we see Nehemiah's opposition. Okay. So remember remember the big picture here. Remember, now we're Old Testament. The big picture is uh, you remember the, the Jews were exiled to Babylon. There were three uh, great trips where they all went, and then they spent about seventy years in Babylon. And then the Lord sent them back to Israel. This is all big 10,000 foot picture. And the first trip was read, led by Zerubbabel and he rebuilt the temple. And then the next trip was led by Ezra and he rebuilt the people. He said, we've got to reform our people. They had forgotten God's word. And then this third trip is led by who? Nehemiah. Okay, some of y'all not sure. It's the book we're in right now. That's okay. You'll, you'll catch on. The third trip was led by Nehemiah, and he came back to rebuild the walls around the city. And so it's, it's pretty neat if you look at it from that perspective. Is like 
Remember, the, God's people, the walls around the city had fallen down, so they were defenseless. They couldn't defend themselves. And Nehemiah's job was to come back and say, hey, we need to set up a way to defend ourselves against our opponent's schemes or uh, against our opponent's, what was the word? What'd you say, Tyler? Design, right? And so Nehemiah says, let me show you what the opponent's going to be up to. Because when we know their plays, uh, we can... Uh, we can really defend ourselves. That's something that's kind of cool about football. I'm not, uh, like, I don't know that much about football. I really don't. Like, I know how the rules work, uh, but some guys, like, know the game big time, and I mean American football. But something that's pretty cool is, it's, is you know, both teams line up, and, and part of the strategy is that the defense doesn't know what the offense is doing, Right? And sometimes, like when you get a linebacker, if I was really good, I never played football, but that would be the position I want to play as linebacker. Those guys have more fun than anyone on the field. You get to sack the quarterback, you get to hit the running back, you get to make interceptions, you get like you're all over the place. And sometimes the smart, the best linebackers, by the way, aren't the biggest, strongest, they're the smartest. The best linebackers have the biggest brain. They understand the game. And what a linebacker will do is he can recognize a certain uh, offensive setup. And as soon as the play starts, even before the play starts, he can know, he can realize what they're going to do. Have you all ever seen this? Like literally I've seen it that you can watch uh, some of the offensive linemen. And I'm, I'm not making this up. Their outside foot, their very outside leg smart guys will look. If, if an outside lineman, sometimes if he lines up with his right leg out, that means he's going to be in a blocking position. Why is that? Because he's set to come backwards, pass. And, and smart linebackers can look. And sometimes when they look, if they see this, this leg, one leg out of the guys, if they see this leg like this, what's that mean? Run. Why? Because he's in a position to push and move the line. And so smart linebackers are able to recognize and they know, I know what play you're about to do. And this is why you can see the best linebackers, they would just wreck an offense because the offense couldn't surprise them, right? And so when you know, and this is good, ooh, this is really good. When you know the play that your enemy is going to do, it doesn't matter if they're stronger. If you know the play, it doesn't matter if they're bigger, stronger. More, if I know what you're going to do, I can stop you, right? But we'll get to the idea of stronger in a later, because actually he's not stronger, but we'll get to that in a second. So uh, Nehemiah chapter 2, we left off in verse 6. You remember Nehemiah was talking to the king, and verse 6 he says, Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? So it pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. So this is him asking to go to return to Israel. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so he will give me the timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the resistance I will occupy." And so notice what Nehemiah just said is he says, hey, can you send me with some help? He says, can you, can you send me with official letters? And he even says, can you get me a letter to Asaph who keeps the king's forest? Why? Because I need to get timber. Why? Because I got to rebuild this wall. I got to rebuild this gate. Okay. Um, and then it says, and because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my requests. So, okay. So in between verse eight and verse nine, a lot of stuff happens. 
Okay, in between that, that's when he gets approved for this trip. That's when he gathers all the men. Probably, probably weeks, maybe even months pass that he collects everything. Because remember, this trip is, is, takes months to make this trip. This is not a weekend trip to Dallas. This is a, hey, I'm moving my entire family. So when it says so, that's Nehemiah's way of saying, you know, several months later. He says, so I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters the king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. Okay, so pause there. So get the scene. Nehemiah is returning to Jerusalem, and and he comes in in power. Okay? He comes in. I mean, it literally says he has army officers. He has an entire cavalry. He has the Persian army with him walking in. So when he walks in, he makes a statement. And so Nehemiah is not a weak individual. So be very careful whenever, just a few minutes ago, you remember I said, if your enemy is stronger, but you know his, his plan, you can defeat him. Hear me say this, guys. Satan is not stronger because you have the power of Jesus Christ alive in you. Please hear me say this, right? Like you have an army of angels behind you when you walk into any difficult situation, okay? And, and this is not a, hey, have a higher self-esteem in yourself and you can accomplish what, that's not, that's garbage. This is, no, you have the fullness of Christ residing in you so that no matter what happens, we are more than conquerors in that situation. Are you all with me on this? This is not prosperity gospel stuff, okay? But this is that the fullness of Jesus Christ is alive in his church. I'm looking at it right now. Look around the room real quick. Do it. This is the fullness of Christ, right? I know, we're not too impressive. I'm, I'm just kidding. No, this, this, I mean, and get that image. Nehemiah walking, he has this army behind him. And he has letters, he has letters of authority from who? From the king. Okay, don't miss this picture. This is powerful. Now look at verse 10. Immediately, verse 10, when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Okay, so these are their neighbors. These are the guys to the north and to the south. And immediately when Nehemiah walks in, what does he already experience? Opposition. Like as soon as he gets there, he gets opposition. And so let me say this to remind you. Guys, when, when you labor for the Lord, you will be opposed. You, you can expect opposition. Uh, you better believe it. When you start pressing into God's plan for your life, you're going to be opposed. It will happen. In fact, there's enemies already sitting there waiting for you. They were waiting for Nehemiah. But what I want you to see is their tactics are all fear-based. They actually have zero power. This is what we're going to look at. They have no power to do anything. All they have is power to persuade in the power that, that we give them. So verse 11, keep going. So Nehemiah, and, and I love this. Notice verse 11 says, I went to Jerusalem and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding. That's a horse. Okay, so, so pause real quick. I, I love this image too. Nehemiah walks into Jerusalem with power, with the king's authority, with vision, and immediately he's opposed. And what's his response? 
he ignores them. Like, there's something to that. Do you see that? He doesn't go and say, okay, let's talk about that. He doesn't give them his time. He doesn't give them that. He says, hey, I've, I've, I'm on a mission from God, right? And this reminds me, and I reference this all the time. You remember when Jesus sent out the 72 and he sent them out two by two? Remember, he said, if someone welcomes you, what do you do? You stay there. But, but then Jesus says, if someone doesn't welcome you, what do you do? What do he say? He said, just brush the dust off and what? And move on. Like, and, and what this speaks to me is, guys, not everything deserves a response. You know, there's so many keyboard jockeys now online that, man, you know, sure, put a picture of your dinner on Facebook. Put a picture of your dog. I don't care. No, no one cares, by the way. And all the stuff people are typing, they're sitting on the toilet anyway. So keep that in mind <laughs> when you're seeking people's approval. Um, but, but how many times do you see it that you'll put something online and it gets misunderstood and then people, uh, people oppose you? Hear me say this, guys. Not everything deserves a response. Because I've tried it a couple times that I would sit down and I would carefully think. And I mean it. I try to be real careful with my words. I would carefully think and craft this really thought-out response. And, and I'd reread it and think, okay, surely this makes sense. And it's logical and it's precise. And I'd hit enter. And, I, and then what do you do? You sit there and you wait. And then, you know, they response with like, nuh-uh. And you're just like, oh my gosh. Like, this is the response I get. But this is my point. Not everything deserves a response, guys. Okay? There's an appropriate time. And that's probably not the best. Just stick to funny pictures of cats and cute pictures of babies on Facebook. And we'll be fine. Okay? Have you, have you seen the picture? It's a picture of a guy sitting next to his computer, and, <laughs> and all it says is, there, I posted my opinion online. That should solve everything. <laughs> Have you all seen that? <laughs> I didn't think it was funny either. Okay. Uh, okay, so anyways, notice what Nehemiah is doing. He's gotten to Jerusalem, and he's starting to survey the work there. You could even say he's starting to count the cost of what he's doing. Uh, verse 13 he says, by night I went out through the valley gate towards the jackal well and the dung gate. Whoever named these, I don't know, but it's written right there. Examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool. But there, listen to this, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. That's his horse. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Okay, so just to get the picture, guys, Jerusalem, the walls are so destroyed, literally his horse can't even get through there. Okay, that's why he says that. Like, it's that bad. The situation is this bad. So he goes on by foot, says, finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officers did not know where I had gone or what I was doing because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. He says, come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I mean, one thing you got to like is he just, he calls a spade a spade. Like, there's something noble about that, right? He says, hey, guys, like he gathers everyone together. And you know there had to be people that were like, hey, it's not that bad. There had to be people that, were, that would have said, hey, look, man, Sanballat and Tobiah, our neighbors, they're not that bad. It could be worse. 
right? And, and Nehemiah shows up and he says, hey guys, you see the trouble we're in. And he says, Jerusalem lies in, in ruins. And so there's something to that. Just, let's just call it out for how it is. Let's not sugarcoat it. Let's just be honest, you know? Uh, even like when we're doing, uh, we're going to have that uh, budget meeting and vote that everyone's so excited about. Man, people are calling me about, when's the budget meeting? I'm so excited. They're putting it on the calendar. And, uh, make reservations. We may not have enough seats here for everyone. Uh, no, but, but even with the way we deal with our budget, it, it's just black, like, hey, let's just not sugarcoat it. We got to make some cuts or we got to give more. Like, can, can we do that? I love that Nehemiah does that. He doesn't like avoid the topic. And so even with our budget, you got the paper in front of you. Hey, we got to figure out how to come up with that money. Anyways, um, verse 18, I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. Okay, so look, they've started rebuilding the wall. This is where our narrative catches up. Verse 19, what's the very next word? But when Sanballat, who's that? We've already met this guy, this jerk. When Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, they've already been, been mentioned, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked us and ridiculed us. So notice Sanballat and Tobiah, they went and got their third idiot friend, right? And so they went and got reinforcements because they saw, hey, this Nehemiah guy, he's not going to slow down. And this is what I want to point out. There's three ways that they um, try to stop the work of the Lord. We'll just read through it. It says, when they heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us, number one. Number two, what is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? And then number three, uh, Nehemiah says, I answered them, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. So this is what I want to point out today is we can see, like when I said, like kind of like Satan's playbook, like these are three of his top plays. Number one, it says, look, it says that they ridiculed and they mocked us. You see that right there. This is, this is something that ridicule and mocking, how much power does that actually have over you? Let's think objectively. How much power does that actually have over you? We'll say that again. However much you give it right? Like, and think about this, guys, and we've all been there when you think, hey, I want to start, I truly want to start following the Lord. I want to start honoring Him with my time. I want to start honoring Him more with my family, with my calendar, all that. And instantly, what's that thought? Ah, oh, you're going to look stupid. Oh my gosh, you don't want to be that guy. Come on, Russell. No, just, just be a nominal Christian. Just show up. Just, just, just show up on Sundays. Just do the thing. Maybe put some money in. If you're really super duper Christian, every now and again, when when the pastor speaks, sometimes you go, "Hmm," right? Those, who, who just did that? Was that? <laughs> thanks, thanks, Sam. Right? Like, isn't there this part, this part of us that says, "Hey, don't, no, don't, don't devote yourself, like your whole life, to Jesus. Just give him thirty-five percent. Just give him fifty percent. Just give him eighty percent of you. You're gonna look stupid. You don't want to be that guy." This is mocking and ridicule, and it only have as much power as we give it. But guys, we give it a lot of power. Let's be fair. We give fear so much power. Um, they say that, that we're only, well, they say that they, the ambiguous they, 
they say that almost all fear in our life is learned. Y'all know that? That almost all fear is learned. They, they say that infants, when we're actually born, they say that we're actually born with two fears. One is a fear of loud noises. It scares an infant. And number two is the fear of the sensation of falling also scares an infant. To my understanding, is that right, Laura? You can shake your head. Okay, so, so think about that. Guys, think about that. Think of all the fear you're carrying around. How much of that has just been placed on you? How much of it do we bow down to because we're told to be afraid, right? Like, we try to not teach my girls to be afraid of things. Like, my girls aren't afraid of snakes. They're just not. But, but they respect them and we educate them on snakes. My girls are not afraid of spiders because we respect them and we educate them on it. And, and I'm, I'm for real, like, we, right now at our house, we have a spider. It's one of those big, is it a banana spider? What's it called? Banana, you know the big ones around here? They're nasty looking, dude. Like it's, and, and she's about that big around. Um, and she appeared on our porch one day with her webs. And what did we do? She's been there for weeks. And, and we, we researched her and we know she's a girl. And, and, we re, and we named her. The girl's named her Charlotte. And so we've got, and remember, this is one of those nasty looking spiders. But remember, guys, because we researched it, it's, it's harmless, okay? So, okay. Uh, but the girls go out every morning. Oh, let's go look at Charlotte's web. Where, and, and she wasn't there this morning. And so the girls are thinking, where's Charlotte? And I've got a five-year-old. When she sees spiders, she's not afraid. Why is that? Because she doesn't need to be afraid because we're educating her, right? And then there was another day that we were out working at the, you know, the land at KLA, and we were digging some posts or something, and um, we came across a black widow on this post. And you know what I did? I said, girls, come here. I said, touch it. No, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. No, I said, I said girls, come over here. And, and I had gloves on, and I educated. And I said, hey, this one, this is called a black widow. And I said, girls, this is very dangerous. And I said, if you ever see this, you don't touch it, you don't do anything, you come and find me. And then I killed it, okay? Because um, we're not going to have black widows around where our children are playing, okay? But we're educating them. My whole point, most people's fear is just learned. They're afraid because they're told to be afraid, right? We can have the fun ones with snakes and spiders. Those are easy. But then some of the more difficult ones, fear of commitment. Some people are terrified of being alone, right? Terrified of actually trusting the Lord, T terrified of actually saying yes to what he's called you to do, almost all of that fear is just because we're told to be. And it's all based on mock and ridicule, and it only has the power that we give it. Um, the second thing you see is, look at this, he says, are, are you rebelling against the king? I'll go real quick on this. Uh, this is an accusation. He's accusing them. They assume, listen to this, they assume that pursuing God's will is rebellion against the government. Okay, that's what's happening in the text here. I'm not political. But they assume to, re to follow God's will means that you are actively rebelling against the government. And remember, what did Nehemiah have in his hands? He had, he had authority from the king, right? But they still accuse. That's what they do. They, like, they accuse, and Satan is called, one of his names is what? The accuser of the brethren. This is what Satan does, is he accuses us. And I don't care who you are or where you're at, he's always accusing. Think about this. 
before someone becomes a Christian, before they're born again, here's the voices Satan whispers to them. These are the voices. If you actually think about it, it's mind-boggling. These are the voices he whispers to those who don't know the Lord yet. He says, hey, you're really not that bad. He says, you don't don't really need Jesus. He says, look at this other guy, he compares, and he says, you're not a murderer. You're really not that bad off. You're fine. Just try hard. And then here's the crazy thing. As soon as someone walks in faith and places their faith in Jesus, do you know what the message is now? It flips 100%. He says, oh, you're a terrible person. He says, you are awful. He says, you don't deserve this. Have you all noticed that? These are the lies that he tells. And then he still compares. He says, you're not nearly as good as this person. You're not nearly as, as, as Christian-y as that guy. Oh my gosh, this guy's a way better husband. This guy's a way, and that's what he does is he accuses and he brings false accusations. But dear Christian, please remember, what do you have in your hand? You have the authority of the king, right? And you have what the Bible describes Jesus says is it says uh, that he is our defender, right? Is that Satan, he sits somehow, I don't understand this 100%, but he has access to God. We can read this in Job. He, he goes to the Lord and he accuses us before him. And we have an advocate on our behalf is that God the Father, the just and righteous judge, you know what he does? Is he looks over at the person representing me who is Jesus Christ. And oh, go to Isaiah 59 real quick. Sorry. I almost gave it away. Isaiah 50, uh, 49. I'm sorry. Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49, verse 14. Verse 14 says, uh, this is Isaiah the prophet speaking. This is a different time. Uh, This is before Nehemiah, but we can still get the truth from it. Isaiah 14, it says, But Zion said, that's another word for Jerusalem or God's people. He says, But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. Okay, so look, and that should be in quotes. Is that in quotes in y'all's Bible? So this is, he's, he's quoting what Jerusalem says, okay? They're wrong, but he's still quoting it. The Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. And then verse 15, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. Verse 16, I love this. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my, what? Hands. Okay. So think about this for a minute. That when Satan the accuser accuses us in our conscience before the Lord, what the Lord does is he turns and looks at Jesus Christ, the God-man, who is a physical, literal being in heaven right now at the right hand of the Father. I guess he turns this way. He turns to the right and, and he says, hey, does this accusation hold up? And what does Jesus do? He looks at the palms of his hands and sees what? These scars that are engraved in his hands. And, and he sees the reminder of the cross that he bore to cover all sin for all mankind. And he looks and he says, no, nope, the accusation doesn't hold up. Right? So guys, you have an accuser, but you have a defender who is perfect in court. He's never lost never will. And so his accusations have no 
authority other than what? Well, we give them, okay? And then the last thing, look back in Nehemiah chapter 2. He says, when Nehemiah says, as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem. Uh, this is a reference to, and I hope you remember, you remember when Ezra was trying to rebuild the temple? Do you remember the people said? And they said what? They came and they said, hey, let us help. And do you remember what Ezra said? He said, no. He said, you have no share in what you're doing. This is, this is one of the playbooks in Satan's uh, 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 book is that he offers to help, right? Like think about, um, think of how many, how many offers there are for your good, but in the end they end up being uh, for your bad. Are y'all with me on this? Like how many offers there are in the world that it says like, hey, this, this will make you happy. Like this, this will make you successful. This will make you feel better. And in the end, what does it lead to? It leads to death. This is why, and we don't have time, but 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. this is why it says that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. Think about that. It says he masquerades as an angel of light. This is one of his tactics that he uses through the world so much is coming to believers and saying, hey, let me help. Let me help you with that, right? Let, let me, like, it's kind of like a casino offering a free buffet. You know, do you, do you get to eat the food for free? You, well, you, sorry, do you get to eat the food? Is it free? Uh-uh. Is it for your good? Absolutely not. But, but everything is sold in that way. All the lights, all the success. Hey, just... Just come and try this thing. This is for your good. This is going to help you, right? And it's this offer over and over. Hey, this will help, right? Here, here just, start, just start numbing the pain. Just start drinking some alcohol. Just start uh, numbing the pain. Uh, just start binge eating. Just, just numb the pain. Hey, just watch 12 hours of Netflix uh, per day, right? This will help. This will help. And it's a false help. That is Satan masquerading as an angel of light. And it's a lie because he's the father of lies. Okay. Uh, so the last thing I want to say is, guys, please don't miss that picture. When Nehemiah first walks on the scene, what does he have behind him? He's got this army with him. And he has the authority of the king. And for those of you that are in Jesus, you have the authority. <laughs> My gosh, you have the authority of Jesus Christ living in you. Like, do you think about that? I don't think we do. Like the, 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 the power that raised Jesus from the dead is alive in his church now. And we have this authority that when you feel the attacks from Satan, like when you feel those attacks, what authority means is we don't, we don't bunker down and say, oh, please go away. Like authority is, hey, in the name of Jesus Christ, you're commanded to leave. Right? When you feel that attack of perfectionism, Right? When you feel that attack of busyness, that we can say, hey, I'm not asking. I'm commanding that spirit to leave this place. Right? That's what authority is, guys. And you have the authority of Christ living in you, living in, um, living in us. The last thing I want to do is I want to watch a video. I want to talk about Satan as the accuser. Uh, remember, what he accuses us of is he says, hey, you're not good enough. You are never good enough. You've, um, you can never be good enough. And please hear me say this. Do you want to know what? He's right. When he says, I've never been good enough, do you want to know what? 
He's completely right. But he's forgotten the second half. Is that in Christ, everything is, the, the wrath of God is completely satisfied. And so remember, Satan speaks partial truth, which is also known as a what? A lie. And so I've got a video here. I, I did this years ago. I think it was when I was in seminary. And it's kind of long for a video, but stay with me. It's about six minutes, and it's this song about how Satan speaks uh, partial truth to us, but he's forgotten the second half. And the second half is uh, the good news. And so um, after this, I'll be done. I'm not coming back up. So please let, I hope this speaks to you. I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoy doing it. I did it 10 or 11 years ago and found it on my old computer last night. Um, But anyways, here it is.